being the church. What's it mean to be the church? And we looked as we began this message a couple weeks ago at the fact that being the church means being devoted. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were devoted, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, worship. And then it goes on to say that having favor with all the people, the Lord added. They were involved, devoted to evangelism. Now here's what's sad. What's really sad. A Gallup poll was conducted and the main question that was asked was, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? To be born again? To be evangelical? They were striving to find out who considered themselves to be a conservative Christian. I don't know if it surprises you, but it surprised me that 42% of Americans indicated yes. I didn't think it would be that high. I wasn't surprised though by the fact that when they started comparing that question to three other significant areas, that of witnessing and faith sharing, that of the belief that the Bible is the actual Word of God, and the belief that they had had a life-changing conversion experience. When they were also comparing those issues in, the number dropped to only 18%. Only 18%. We are not living in a Christian society. So the question that I want to ask this morning is what does being devoted look like? Now last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 where the people read the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm so glad in our daily Bible reading, and I, and I was told that this week by, by someone else, so glad that we're in at least in Daniel now so we got some stories and all. But in our all-church reading plan, how hard it was to get through those five books. But it says that they read the Bible for a fourth of the day. Three to four hours, depending on how you look at a day's time. Twelve or sixteen hours. And then they confessed and prayed for another fourth of the day. In other words... Their worship service lasted for between six to eight hours. Not just an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half, but six to eight hours. Or to help you understand what devoted means, I could also point you to Acts chapter 20. When it says that Paul prolonged his speech, his message, his teaching until midnight. And yes... Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of the third story window to his death. But, in Acts chapter 20 verse 11, it says that after Paul brought Eutychus back to life, they had a communion service and then Paul conversed with them until daybreak. Now, I know that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. 
But still, you have to get the point. Those people were devoted to being Christians. They were devoted to hearing the Word of God. They were devoted to worshiping God. They weren't just going through the motions. They weren't just getting up and going to church on Sunday morning so all their neighbors would see them go to church so they could say, well, I went to church Sunday. No, they were living the life 24-7, 365. Let me tell you what being devoted means in just two words. It's an uncompromising commitment. Let me give you an example. It was on Sunday, April the 8th, 1945. And though he had already been warned, though he had already been told what was going to take place, he insisted on leading the worship service in the prison that morning. And just after he had led the worship service, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken to be hanged. And this was just a few weeks before the Allies reached the camp. The Nazis knew that and they hanged him anyway. In fact, the final battles of the European theater of World War II, as well as the overall surrender of Nazi Germany, was going to take place just weeks later in late April, early May of 1945. A camp doctor recounted that as Bonhoeffer climbed the steps to be hanged, He was clearly, in the words of the doctor, brave and composed. Knowing that his life, his work, and now his death were not in vain. One writer has declared Bonhoeffer to be a champion for the oppressed, a soldier for human life even at the cost of his own life. Stating that his own faith drove him to protect the faith of others. He understood the cost of true discipleship and proceeded until death. He and his was an investment in a life of uncompromising commitment. Obedient to the call to be devoted. Devoted to learning. Devoted to fellowship. Devoted to worship. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament reminds us in the 10th chapter that we're also to be devoted to assembling together. And he goes on to say, as not to for, neglect it as is the custom of many. And, and the fact is, is, we were just talking about that this morning. There are so many who don't even have a practice, a weekly practice of worshiping anymore. They met on the first day of every week for the breaking of bread and prayers. But you know what? Acts tells us they also did it during the week in each other's houses. It wasn't confined just to a little bit of time on Sunday mornings. And we saw last Sunday that our duty, the preeminent duty of the church is to worship God. We looked at Psalm 105 when John Stott referred to it as the best scriptural definition of worship. To glory in His name, His holy name. And you know as well as I do that it's how we begin the model prayer when we say it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed 
be thy name. Psalm 105 also calls us to give thanks to the Lord, to call upon His name, to make known His deeds among the peoples, to sing to Him, to sing praises to Him, to tell of all His wondrous works, to let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, to seek the Lord and His strength, and to seek His presence continually, remembering the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles, and the judgments He uttered. I seriously wonder, and in fact, when I have the opportunity, I ask people, why do you want to go to heaven? Now I'm talking about unchurched people, even people who profess to be Christians, but never find their way to worship with other Christians. I ask him, why do you want to go to heaven? Don't you know that heaven is going to be one big 24-7, 365? Of course, there won't be years because there won't be a sun going around, earth going around the sun. But don't you know that heaven is going to be about worship? I think many people only want to go to heaven so they won't have to go to hell. They don't want to be with God, worshiping God, or else they'd be here this morning. They just want some fire insurance. We're continuing our sermon series, Being the Church 101. And I've titled my sermon this morning simply, As You Are Going. And our text is the Great Commission. You know, scripturally speaking, we have the Great Commandment. Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is likened to it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We have the great confession. Peter said you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And we have today what many think of as the great commission. Let's look at it together. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. Did you catch that? We're talking about the disciples who have already experienced Jesus resurrected. And they're still having doubts. Nothing wrong with doubt as long as it's done in a healthy way. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, or in low, or amen, I'm with you always to the end of the age. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. When I read this again, and when I reflected on it, there were three things that just jumped out at me. Things that I think... Uh, we can see in how the church needs to respond if it's going to be the church. 
And the first of those is if we are to be the church that we're called to be, we must first and foremost be convinced as to the authority of Jesus. I've said it often, and I cannot emphasize it too strongly. Jesus cannot be your Savior without being the Lord of your life. There are a lot of people that say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and I, I, I believe He's the Son of God. James says, good for you because even the demons believe that and shudder in fear. Belief only does not save you. That is not scriptural. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, though I know that there are many different options as to how to interpret this and how to apply it, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying to His disciples is more likely a reaffirmation of who He really is, the authority that He has, the authority that belongs supremely and only to Him. After the rejection that He's experienced from the religious leaders, after the fact that He was being crucified, He's resurrected and He says, hey, I want you to know I still have all authority on heaven and on earth. I mean, Jesus wanted to reassure His disciples and thereby us as well that He has the authority. Acts 4, Peter would proclaim to the rulers of the people and the elders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Now, I don't know if you notice in that that Peter really wasn't worried about being politically correct. Jesus was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. He wasn't pulling any punches. It wasn't all roads lead to heaven. It wasn't, well, those are just gods, uh, the same God that are being called by different names. No. Peter remembers when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He is the only Lord of Lords. The only King of Kings. Now, please listen closely. In his book, Multiply, Disciples Making Disciples. Excellent book. I recommend it highly. Francis Chan writes, Imagine Jesus walking up to the first disciples and saying something like this, Hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? Don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything I do or if you change your lifestyle at all. I'm just looking for people who are willing to say they believe in me and they call themselves Christians. Chan goes on to add something. And I think we need to not only hear, but we need to meditate on what he goes on to say. 
the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is open to everyone, but we don't get to write our own job description. If Jesus is Lord, then He sets the agenda. Jesus has all authority. He is in charge. He's in control. And the number one requirement in fulfilling the Great Commission is to make sure that you are following Jesus as a devoted follower. That's the first part of our de definition. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus. Secondly, we must be committed to the assignment we have been given. It's right there in verse 19. I know that I've shared this with you before, but I can't help but do it. The command of the Great Commission, the Greek word that is in the imperative tense, is not the word go. It's translated that way in every translation that I have seen. But it is not an imperative in the Greek language. It's a passive aorist participle, which generally means as you are going, as you are walking. In the New Testament, it's often used metaphorically with the meaning to walk, to live, to conduct oneself in a particular manner. It's assumed, it's assumed that if you're truly a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be walking in a particular manner. You're going to be living your life in a particular way. Which includes sojourns in and among those who are not Christians. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And the command, the assignment that we're given is to make disciples. And we're not doing a very good job. We're not doing a very good job being committed to the assignment. Are you familiar with A.W. Tozier, great man of the past, a lot of great devotional writings? In his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, he begins chapter 9, which is actually titled, How to Make Spiritual Progress. He begins it with this admonition. The complacency of Christians is the scandal of Christianity. Time is short and eternity is long. Complacency. That's a quiet feeling of pleasure or security, but often unaware of some potential danger, defect, or the like. It's self-satisfaction. It's smug satisfaction with an existing situation or condition that is actually detrimental. We are complacent. We, we just, we've gotten to a position where we feel, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Uh, can't we all just disagree? Isn't that, you know, can't you be you and me be you and everything's fine? Listen to me. Bill Hull describes in his commentary a disciple as someone whose intention is to follow Jesus and to learn from Him how to live life as though Jesus were living it. Now you and I have been given a command, an assignment. 
We're to be making disciples. Obedient followers who have accepted the Lordship of Jesus over all of their life. But are we? Are we committed to the assignment that Jesus gave to us? Thirdly, in this passage, uh, it just seems to me that we need to be comforted by the promises of Jesus. Jesus who has all authority, therefore the authority to give us any assignment He chooses, has commanded us to be disciple makers. And I know that this can feel overwhelming. I think that's why He quickly promises His presence in the last part of verse 20. And lo, behold, and amen, I'm going to be with you always to the end. While Jesus gives what seems like an impossible assignment, He goes on to do it with His authority and also with His faithful assurance. Jesus is present with us throughout the entire discipleship process. In fact, in John chapter 16, when He's talking to His disciples, Last Supper, about to be arrested, Verse 7 and following, he's trying to comfort his disciples regarding his imminent death when he reminds them, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, that is, God the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. And when He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan's been judged. Now, let me make a little application here. Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? I'm going to be with you. At the back, on the table to the right and the table to the left, are some little tracks that I have made up. On the front, it has a verse from Jeremiah, You will seek me and find me when you search me with your heart, with all your heart. And the question, are you feel, do you feel empty? Is there a search for a sense of meaning in your life? On the inside, there is a picture of the cross and the word God loves you. And over on the right, you'll see this emblem at the top. Let me explain it to you. Because you can hand this to somebody and use these little things at the top to say the story of the Gospel. God came in the person of Jesus. He died on a cross for our sins. But the grave couldn't hold Him. He arose from the grave. He ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. But guess what? He's coming back. And there's three points in here. Simply, point one, we're separated from God because of sin. And a verse. Point two, Jesus came to earth to redeem us. And a verse. And then point three, what must we do? And a couple different verses. On the back is a picture of our church, our address, and a phone number. 
Now, I've got them back there in packets of five in paper clips or packets of ten in a bigger spring clip. The application, obviously, for us is if we want to take the assignment of Jesus, here's a tool where you can take one of the small packets and at least speak to five people this week as witnesses, as you're commanded to go out and try to make disciples. Because Jesus said in John, again, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Which obviously means to make disciples. Because that was the last command He gave. And I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper. In the Greek, that means another helper of the same kind as me, the Holy Spirit. And that helper will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then he goes on to say, I'll not leave you as orphans. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. He's going to ascend. But you'll see me because I live, you also will live. And guess what? Jesus goes on to repeat the promise. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. What day? The day we submit to the authority of Jesus and are obedient to His commands, especially the command to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do whatever He has called us and commanded us to do. You see, we have to realize that's the only way to abundant living. To observe all that we have been commanded to do. So here's my concluding question. Are you truly a disciple? Are you truly a person who is convinced of the authority of Jesus over all of your life? Who is committed to the assignment Jesus gave us to be obedient disciple makers? And someone who has come to understand and appreciate the promises that we have been given. My prayer is that when I get to the back of the auditorium later this afternoon, I'll find out that the majority of these little packets of five or ten have been taken. And you'll commit yourself to being disciple makers. You'll commit yourself to being people who are willing to witness, not just to being pew sitters on Sunday morning who, Lord forbid, we go over an hour. And we're not. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to not be satisfied. Help us to not be complacent. But to somehow figure out how we can change ourselves in such a way that we will be seen and understood to be truly devoted to being disciple makers, worshipers, students and learners as we continue on in our lives. Use us as we strive 
to reach out to this community, the county, and all whom we come in contact with, with the love of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn.